just talk, oh my goodness. I'll just talk louder for now until we get that sorted. We, uh, we changed some stuff this morning, so that's probably on me. Um, welcome here. Good to have you. Ernie, just so you know, actually, just so it's public record, is Shayla plays a lot more instruments than I do. So, just so that's clear. Just saying. Um, yeah. Welcome here. Good to have you. We're going to pray. Uh, we're going to spend a few minutes in prayer, and at the conclusion of that, we'll take the offering up so the guys can come on up. Uh, and then we'll, we'll begin our second last sermon through the book of Exodus. Uh, so let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. What an awesome privilege it is to gather together as your saints, that we might worship you, that we might sing praise to you. God, that you give us purpose and hope and meaning is a tremendous gift. And so, God, I pray that this morning as we study through a text of your word that's inspired, written from the Holy Spirit to us, that we would know that there is truth in there for us, that we can not only understand it intellectually, but we can learn how it applies to our relationship with you and with each other. God, as Ernie mentioned, we know that life is messy and, and difficulties and struggles, hurts and pains, and, and occasionally triumphs. But God, it seems to me anyway that so often it's in those dark valleys that as we're hurting and struggling that we tend to want to do that alone. And yet there's no greater time for us to reach out both to you and to the church. And so, God, I do pray for those this morning who are going through stuff, as each one of us have challenges and struggles and unique difficulties. No two lives here are the same, but that doesn't mean that we don't need to trust you any less. And so, God, for whatever each person is going through today, whether they're struggling with grief whether they're struggling with betrayal, whether it's relationship issues, whether it's financial issues or job issues. God, you know each of these things. And so we submit to you in that and we ask that you would intervene and that you would do things and that we would trust you with whatever it is that you are leading us. God, we thank you for this church family that we can gather so regularly. But this morning we think of those who are away, and specifically I think of Caleb as he's recovering from shoulder surgery. Would you strengthen him? Would you help him to heal well, that he might be able to get back to the things that he enjoys doing? God, for others that have very specific needs, we know that you know those, and so we lift them up to you this morning. God, we also want to look at the state of our world and acknowledge that we live in a broken and a fallen world. And so, God, would you give us the courage to live in a way that honors you and to live in a way that loves others? And not just in word, but in deed, that we might care for our community, that we might show the love of Jesus in the way that we talk, but also in the way that we act. 
Would you give us opportunities this week to be a light for somebody in need? That we might be able to meet that need that they have. That we might be able to show them that it's not in our goodness that we do that, but it's because we believe in your goodness. So God, as we do these things, as we live out the week that you have put in front of us, may we honor you in all that we do and all that we say. God, for these tithes and offerings that we give to you now, again, we want to hold everything that we have with open hands to give to places that matter, to use our time in a way that's good stewarding, that is not about us, but is about others. And so we pray that you would give us much wisdom in how to do that. God, thank you for the gifts that you have given to us. What we give back to you now is just a portion. It's just a tiny, small percentage. But we do so knowing that you can do far greater things with it than we can. So God, thank you for your goodness. Be with us in the rest of these moments now. Amen. All right, well, like I mentioned, is this is the second last um, sermon through the book of Exodus. So we're finally here. Now, except, and I mentioned this already, but in case you weren't here, is we're going to have six chapters to get through next week, and usually I make it through about four verses. So we're going to make it through. That's okay, um, because a lot of chapters 35 to 40 are things that we studied in the initial where God talks to Moses about what the tabernacle is going to look like. And then those chapters are the actual implementation and construction of it. And so we're not going to spend lots of time in there only because we really studied through that section uh, already. Uh, We'll have a video for you to kind of see a picture. And we showed this video a couple of times earlier in the spring of kind of what the tabernacle looks like, what the pieces of furniture represent. And I hope that that's meaningful to you. But more importantly than that... As I was kind of wrestling through this last little bit here, we're going to look at chapter 34, verses 10 to to 35. And, And again, there's a section in here that we've already looked at. But there's three different kind of things that I want to focus on. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded, and and as I was reading a, a book for seminary, I was reminded that my primary role as a pastor should be this, is to teach the congregation, to teach those of you who come, how to interpret, understand, and apply scripture to your lives. That's my sole goal, is I want you to be able to go home, read these things, and and again, book of Exodus, we're looking at thousands of years of history, but I want you to know how to read it, figure out how to interpret it in its original context, and then figure out, now how does this apply to my life today? Not, how does this apply to my life today without understanding the original context? And so we've seen, I hope, and I trust that you've seen this, is that the people back in Exodus are no different than we are, is they want to follow God, they say they want to follow God, but they also want to be in control of how they follow God. And how often do we make those same decisions? How often do we know what's true and what's right and that we ought to do, but we kind of want a secret option C of how to follow it, where it's kind of more on our terms? I hope you've also seen that as we've looked through, especially the last number of weeks, that everything written in the Old Testament is ultimately pointing forward to Jesus Christ. 
As one of my professors used to always say to me, if you read the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus, you're reading it wrong. Because that's the point of it. That's where we're headed. As we learn from the people of Israel, from their mistakes, sometimes from their success, from their obedience, I hope that we see and understand how it applies to our lives, that we might obey what Christ has commanded us to do, not because it's oppressive, but because it actually gives us life. It actually is the best way for us to live. And it's the way that we'll honor people and care for them. Last week, we looked at verses 6 and 7 of 34, and primarily we looked at a few different characteristics of God, and really we got stuck with this idea of God is loving, but God is also just. God is merciful and graceful, and yet he will not let the wicked go unpunished. And we talked about how that's actually a blessing and a good thing because God, as a good father, knows here's what's right and here's what's good, and here's what will lead you to life. Here's what will lead you to purpose and meaning. And sometimes the decisions we make lead us in another direction, and a good father doesn't just allow their son or daughter to go, yeah, that's fine, just do it your own way. Figure it out on your own. Deal with those consequences. A good father still does give consequences, but he helps them in the midst of that. And that's what we've seen over and over in the book of Exodus is that God continues to be faithful even when his people are faithless. And we're going to see that again this morning as we begin to read in verse 10. And I just want to mention this so that you see it, is it's a reminder that the people already broke the covenant. God said to them, here's my covenant to you. And while Moses was still up on the mountain getting those things etched in the Ten Commandments, is what are the people doing down below? redefining the terms of the covenant and worshiping a golden calf. Moses comes down and he breaks the commandments, signifying that the people have broken covenant with God, and God gives consequences that they justly deserve. But then he also offers mercy, and what we'll see here in verse 10 is, again, he invites them back into that covenant, the one that they've already broken. So let's read together verse 10. Of chapter 34. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as, has, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation and in all the people among you whom you are, whom you, pardon me, whom you are shall see the work of the Lord for it is an awesome thing that I will do. God is about to restore the people by his mercy and by his grace. Before we keep reading, I just want to clarify something really quickly because this is, it gets uncomfortable. As we read, the language is going to sound pretty aggressive and harsh at one point. And if it makes you uncomfortable, I think that's okay because it makes me uncomfortable too. It's written in such a way that we might not talk today because we don't want to sound so aggressive. But in the original Hebrew, it's actually stated even more harshly. And I only give you that warning so that when you feel uncomfortable by the words, know that they're meant to cause uncomfortability. Verse 11, observe what I've commanded you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break the pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters and your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none, of, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the, first, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of the ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat, a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write, the, write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So there's a lot in there, but as I mentioned, a lot of this we've already studied. And, and so I'm not going to look at some of these kind of what seem to be more obscure commands, only because you're welcome to go back on May 21st. And you can write that down if you're curious. On May 21st, we looked at a lot of those more obscure commands and, and how there's a reason behind why God did what he did. And there's symbolism behind all of it, which pointed to God as what was most important and how he was faithful and how he redeemed them and how he saved them. And so I'll skip a little bit of that this morning only for that reason. But I want you to notice something here in the text. First, God restores the covenant to his people, though they do not deserve for it to be restored. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is this is a doctrine that we call the total depravity of man, is understanding that what we deserve is not grace, 
by very definition, grace is unmerited favor given to the individual who doesn't deserve it. So often we think, well, I deserve. We, in fact, in our culture right now, are battling what I would call kind of an epidemic of entitlement, thinking we deserve and think that we are owed. When the truth is that everything that we have is a gift. And it's a funny thing to think about because in our culture right now, it can be so easy to get so consumed with something that's gone wrong in our life and, and get frustrated and go, why me? How could this happen? And then we forget very basic things like the fact that most of the world doesn't have what we have. We are so blessed with what we do have. That doesn't mean we don't have problems or struggles. That doesn't mean there aren't challenges. But it does mean that sometimes when I get frustrated and go, why me? I need to look around the whole world and go, this is not God's vengeance and anger directed at me. This is the result of sin in a very broken and fallen world. But God is restoring the covenant to the people, even though they don't deserve it. He's calling them back into it. But notice what he says in verse 11. Observe what I command you to this day. And he's already said that. And what did they do as soon as Moses went up the mountain to go get the Ten Commandments? Right? I said it already. They redefined everything. They wanted to worship God, but they also wanted uh, an idol, something that stood before them that they could see and they could pour out their worship to because it was there and and, and they could kind of see it and touch it. God reminds them again here in verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. That Hebrew word for cast metal is the same as as a golden calf. He's reminding them, I know what you did, and I have forgiven you of that, but please, you need to observe what I've commanded you. Otherwise, you're going to end up in that same place again. And so in this first little bit, the one thing I want to comment on is that he says, take care, verse 12, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. God says, I have made a covenant with you. And as Peyton already read, is the covenant that was given to Abraham was a covenant that through Abraham's nation, that all nations of the world would find blessing. That God was going to use this nation to bring about the truth of who God is so that all nations could enter into that. That was God's covenant with Abraham. And he's saying, so don't go make a covenant with other nations because if you do that, You're going to compromise on the convictions of what God says is true and right and good because they're already compromising on those things within their own camp. And so we can look to history to see this, biblical history. In in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read a story about King Solomon. Now, in, in the good aspect of it, what is King Solomon known for? Yeah, he's the wisest person, right? Like, like God said he would give him anything his heart desired, and he asked for wisdom with how to rule rightly and justly and fairly. And so God said, because you've asked for this, I will grant it to you. But he also gives him wealth, and he gives him peace, and, and all of these things. And, and so here's Solomon, the wisest king to ever reign, the wisest human to ever reign. But if you think of the history, what happened to King Solomon? didn't end very well. Now, if you look at it, why didn't it end very well? Well, the text in 1 Kings 11, we're not going to read it this morning, but it says this, is that he loved women. 
And specifically, it says he loved foreign women, and he brought these women into his palace, and he entered into a marriage covenant with them. And while God hadn't yet explicitly stated that that was not his way, it was very obvious. And they began to bring their foreign gods in with them, and and it, it seems like what Solomon did is he just, he just went, okay, well, if I'm going to marry you, then I'll, you'll, you can bring your gods in and you can worship them. But he started to compromise on that. And what we see is he began to worship them. In fact, those idols entered into the temple that he built that was for God and God alone. And the text says that he began to offer sacrifices to foreign gods. This is the warning that's here that we see happen all through the nation of Israel. And and once King Solomon dies and the nations get split, the ten tribes of the north basically do this for the rest of their history until exile. So they continue to worship all the other gods. What God is saying here is if you compromise on what's true and what's right, you're going to start compromising more and more and more and more. Until you're at the place where you don't even realize how much you have compromised. Now, again, this doesn't mean, so in our context, it doesn't mean that we don't love people and treat them with respect and dignity and honor. But we can do that while disagreeing. We can do that while holding the word of God high. It's difficult, but that's the calling. Is we are to hold biblical truth high without just casting judgment and condemnation on people, but showing them that there's a reason why these biblical truths are good and, and why they matter. And they're, they're actually not only going to help my relationship with God, but they're going to help my relationship with, with humanity. And so God says, don't make this covenant with foreign nations. If you do, your sons and your daughters are going to be seduced away to following other gods. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul writes this to us. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both both yourself and your hearers. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says that there will come a time when sound doctrine will not be heard, but people will accumulate teachers for themselves that teach whatever the people want to hear. And if I'm honest, I think that that is the most apt description of our culture that we find ourselves in today. Is if we don't like something, we go, well, there's got to be a reason that it's wrong, and we just kind of move past that, and we don't talk about those things. Instead of studying and going, why has God said these things? Why has he given these rules? Either we view God as a killjoy who only wants us to worship him because he's some egomaniac who needs our worship, or we're looking at it as that he loves us, and he has created us, and he's given us a way in which we will thrive if we obey him. So that's where study of scripture, the study of God becomes important. And that's why Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. If we don't know what the teachings are, then how can we keep a close watch on them? If we know what the teachings are, but we don't know why the teachings have been given, then, well, that's called legalism. And the church has been very guilty of that many times in our history. And I don't mean ours in Banff Park. I mean in the history since the book of Acts. 
We're not just to do things that God wants and not do things that we shouldn't do. We're supposed to understand why. And this is why for all of 2024, and I mapped this out, and it might be 2025, 2026, who knows, uh, is we're going to study through the book of Acts. We're going to look at the apostles' teachings. We're going to look at what we are called to do, but we're going to look at why we're called to do it so that when we come up with teachings that seem to go against Scripture, we can have a conversation and go, why has God said this and does it matter? Is it important? This section ends by saying, stand firm. Then verses 17 to 27, as I mentioned, are some of these regulations. And and again, this is uh, Exodus chapters 20 to 23, which we looked at in May 21st. And we didn't necessarily look at every specific law, but we did look at why those laws were given and to what they were pointing people towards. And so if there's anything in there that I read that you were like, man, what's this about the firstborn? What's this about breaking a donkey's neck? Like some of this is really obscure. I just encourage you to go back on the website to May 21st, and and we had a big discussion about that. So then we'll skip ahead to verse 27. And again, it says, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. God is going to continue to be faithful even when we are faithless. Even when the people turn their backs on God, there is consequence, but there's mercy that God gives to bring them back into line with him. And and for a big chunk of the Bible, we call that the prophets. The people turned from God and followed their own ways, and God would call a prophet. The prophet would come, and he would remind them of the things that God has said and what was true in the covenant that the people agreed with and said, yes, we will do all of these things. And the prophets would remind them that this is what God has called you to. Verse 28, we are reminded again, Moses is up. This is the second time he's been up for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain. And we just see a little detail given here that he neither ate bread nor drank water. And and all the text is really simply saying is that while Moses was in this encounter with God, that everything that he needed for survival was found in God. It was a miraculous thing that God did to sustain him. Now this leads us to this last section. And this is kind of the fulfillment of what we looked at two weeks ago is that God promised, Moses says to God, he says, I want to experience your glory. I want to see it. Will you grant that to me? And God says that he will. And he says, you don't, you don't actually get to experience me in my fullness because we could never process, right? The creator could not appear to the created in a way that would be complete fulfillment. We wouldn't understand that. But he says, I'll show you kind of what he says is a piece of all of my goodness. And that's what's happening here. And there's an implication or, or a, not an implication. There's a, there's a reality that happens to Moses because of this conversation with God. And it's that there's a visible temporary effect on his face that as he comes down, the people see he has been with God. And they're scared. It's very interesting to me. The people know that God has, or sorry, that know that Moses has gone up the mountain again. They know that he's been enveloped in this pillar of cloud and that God's presence is with Moses there. But that when he comes down, there's some outward 
there's this outward reality on Moses that indicates that he was with God. Well, one commentator points this out. He says the way, or one of the reasons why God did this was to show God's greatness over all other gods. Remember, the people had just been seduced away to serve a golden calf. And God's saying, a golden calf is nothing. In fact, you created it. You made it out of wood, and then you lined it with gold, and then you worshipped it. But then when Moses realized what had happened, he came down the mountain, and he destroyed it, and it doesn't exist anymore. It's nothing. What idol can you worship and come away with this type of experience, with this type of visual awareness of his body that his face was glowing? And so we might argue and might say, well, that's true of Moses, but what about me? What about you? That seems like that's not the norm, and it wasn't the norm in the Old Testament. But what we're going to do is I'm going to get you to flip to 2 Corinthians. Sorry, first, I wrote 1 Corinthians. I think it's 2 Corinthians. Let me check. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to go there because Paul uses this exact uh, situation that we talked about here with Moses. He uses this to make an argument that in the New Testament, that God is at work in such a way that you and I, those who have confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, that we have that same opportunity to glow the way that Moses did. Now, not in the exact same way, but he's actually going to argue it's even greater. So let's read this. This is 2 Corinthians 3. Verse 7. And he's going to contrast and compare the old covenant, which is the law, with the new covenant, which is the Holy Spirit given to us. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory came to have no glory at all because of the, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what we have been brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for, the, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now we could spend two or three weeks just in that text dealing with some of the uniquenesses in there. But all I'm trying to point out to us is that we can look back and we can go, man, Moses was with God and he had this encounter. And and of course people then listened to him because his face glowed. What about me and what about you is how are we to show people that God is real that God is true that he has accomplished 
what he set out to do, that salvation has been bought through the blood of Jesus, how will people believe me? And I think that's an easy challenge for us to get sucked into is to look back and to see kind of highlight moments of people that God used supernaturally and go, but God doesn't work through me like that. So what am I supposed to do? Paul's argument here is is not that the old commandment was, was bad or that it was wrong, but that it was temporary and that it was pointing to something, that it was pointing to Jesus. And that when Jesus would come, when he would die on the cross for our sins, when he would raise to life and when he would ascend, that he would give each of us as followers of Jesus the Holy Spirit, which is his spirit at work within us so that we could shine forth the way that Moses does. Maybe not physically, but in a way that we can do the things that God has called us to do. You know, we wrote, there's a song written many years ago that we sing as kids that is in this exact vein, and it's this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Is that we have a light within us that we are to shine and radiate to the world. That's the thing, though, that light that's within us is not from us. It's not ours to determine how to use and when to use. It's God's who gives it to us so that we might be used by him. And so when we live in obedience to God, we are able to shine like Moses. Not not our face literally, but the way in which we love people. Unconditionally, people will look at and go, how would you do that? I would have just cut that person off a long time ago. We could say, because it's not me, it's God within me. It's God at work. It's God giving me what I need. And in fact, this is, so we call marriage in Christianity, we call it a covenant relationship. And ultimately what that covenant relationship is meant to do is it's meant to declare Christ to the world. That as I interact with Shayla, that what people see is not my human nature, but that I give her grace and mercy and that I am patient and kind. When usually when we turn on the TV, what do we see between married couples? One of them's an idiot. And the other one's not much better. Right? Like that's what we see on TV. And we see them just rag on each other and hurt each other and talk poorly about each other. And then when they are separated and the guys are with their friends, they're talking poorly about their wife. And when the, when the women are together and they're not in front of the men, then they talk poorly about their husbands. And, and that's what we see marriage as. And what God says is, no, your marriage is meant to display an a Christ-like love and grace and compassion and kindness. That's the Holy Spirit at work within us. Because here's the truth of the matter is I am deeply selfish. And I want what I want. I didn't tell Shayla I was going to tell this story, but this is about me, not you, so it's okay. It just, we're just painting myself in a real bad light for a moment, but it's going somewhere, I promise. Shayla got a, or I got, I forget. Somehow we got a two-player game. Uh, And if you've ever been to our house to play games, some of you were there last night and did not go well for all of us. Um, But it's a two-player one, and we play it, and Shayla destroyed me. Kind of like when I play Settlers of Catan with Chris, is it doesn't go well for me. And I was like, okay, no problem. It was the first time. Next time I'm going to destroy her. I didn't say that. That's what I thought in my selfish head. And then what happened? Oh, she beat me really badly again. 
And then she beat me really badly again. And I don't know how many times, I probably counted, but I have ADD, so I probably forgot, is that it was like she could tell I was angry. And if you know my wife, you know that she will always lose a game to make someone else feel better. And then that's patronizing to me, isn't it? But that's not her fault. That's my fault. Is my own sinful nature's coming out where it's like, this is supposed to be a fun, enjoyable way to build our relationship. And all I can think of is, how can I crush her? (laughs) Okay, those are all metaphors. I hope you realize I'm not actually as bad as I sound just now. No, I'm actually worse, if I'm honest. But there's this moment where Shayla said, I don't want to, like, do this if it's not enjoyable. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit convicted me and went, I am not treating my wife the way I'm called to. If I care more about me winning a game than celebrating the fact that someone else did something awesome, where does that end? All of a sudden, I'm comparing myself with everybody else, and I have to be better or stronger or faster or more skilled or more eloquent or whatever it is. And here's the truth is I am better at all of those things than very few people in the world. There's always somebody out there who's better than me at everything. That's just the truth of it. Right? As Usain Bolt, there's going to come someone else who breaks his world record that is faster than him. And if our identity is placed in what we're good at, what we want, what we think we can do and what we can accomplish, then it comes at the expense of us building ourselves and us tearing down everybody around us. What we're called to do in this is we're called to live by the ministry of the Spirit. We're called to love people when they hate us. When they want nothing more than for us to fail, we're to pray for them. These are the things that Jesus taught us. And it can be overwhelming because we can look at it and go, I can't do this. Just the same way that two chapters ago Moses said, if your spirit's not going to come with us, then don't even send me because I can't do it. That's the truth of it is I cannot do what God's calling me to do except for the fact that he has equipped me with the Holy Spirit. Now all I have to do is get out of God's way. I got to let my selfishness aside and I have to celebrate that when my family or my friends accomplish great things that I should celebrate with them. And maybe you've had this as a, as a parent. I saw this thing with Tiger Woods the other day. The first time that his son outdrove him in golf. And there was pride for his son, but there was also like this, I'm going to try harder now to prove that I'm better. And all that does, and I'm not ragging on him, this is human nature, this is what we do, is what we should do is celebrate and go, praise the Lord that God has gifted you uniquely and that he is giving you good things. This is the ministry of the Spirit, and so we ought to let our light shine Right? I say it all the time, as Paul says, be ambassadors of Christ. We are to represent him. And if we're going to represent him, then we better understand who he is and what his word says. Because otherwise we're misrepresenting him to the world. If I'm honest, what most of my conversations with people who come into my office are, are trying to undo things that people have said in the name of Jesus that have nothing to do with what the Bible says. We can do a great deal of damage by misrepresenting Christ by going, hey, he's who I want him to be. He's the qualities that I like, but not the ones that I don't. 
when we submit to Christ, the Holy Spirit will work and we will be able to do what God has called us to do. And by that, I don't mean be really rich or have lots of stuff. By that, I mean that we will serve people, we will love them, we will care for them. We will show them who Christ is, not because we are capable of doing it, but because that light shines within us. And as long as we are allowing God to work in and through us, that what we will be able to accomplish is far greater than Moses ever did. And I don't mean that in the sense of comparison of Moses did some amazing miracles. Moses parted the Red Sea, except that he didn't. It was God. So what's God going to do in and through us? Even greater things, not in the sense of quality, but maybe in the sense of quantity. That as we gather together as the church, as we gather together as people of Christ, that we submit ourselves and we say we're going to love our community and we're going we're to hold God's love and his grace and his compassion and his justice all together and we're going to live that for our community is that as we do that together, we'll accomplish way more than any one of us could on our own. That's why the church matters. That's why being together, worshiping together, gathering together, and, and as Ernie pointed out, sharing together matters because we have one mission and we have one goal, to proclaim Christ and to make him known. Let's pray. God, as we look back to parts of the Old Testament that sometimes feel hard to process because it's thousands of years of culture far removed. Would you help us to study those words, to understand the culture to see the whys behind the reason of what you have commanded us. As we read stories like this where Moses' face is so bright and we think, of course everyone listened to him, but why would they listen to me? May we be reminded, as Paul reminded us in 2 Corinthians, that that light, that glory exists within us because your spirit is present with us. So we can declare truth, not because we're smart, not because we have all the answers, but because you have called us and you have equipped us. God, may we be people who represent Jesus the way that Jesus has called us to represent him. May we hold the truth high, but May we also be filled with love and grace. As we go through life, as we go through relationships, as we find disagreements and difficulties, may we hold truth high, but may we love them desperately. God, thank you that you loved us so much that you were unwilling for us to just go our own way. That even back in Exodus, that as the people continued to rebel against you, you would draw them back to yourself, that you would be faithful even when they were faithless. And the same is true of us today. Thank you that you continue to run after us even when we're choosing to do our own thing. Would we see the truth of who you are? Would we see the whys behind what you have commanded us? And would they be as beautiful and as wonderful as they are intended to be? 
God, thank you for this church family. Thank you for those who are visiting. As we process these things in the coming days ahead, may we follow after you in a way that honors you and brings you glory, not us. God, we love you. We thank you. Go with us today now. Amen.